Welcome to TALC, Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills. This is the TALC Talks podcast, helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills, to get better outcomes, and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction. This podcast is an introduction to the module, which is called TALC Skills for Beginning Consultations Effectively. The resources within this module are divided into chapters, and I'm going to introduce the contents of these chapters in this podcast. Getting every consultation off to a good start is often called investing in the beginning. If you put thought and energy into how the consultation starts, this will pay big dividends later on. If you're well prepared when you start, when you establish rapport early on, when a suitable agenda has been negotiated, the rest of the consultation tends to flow a lot more smoothly. Trust develops sooner and that makes for easier planning and safety netting later on in the consultation. Some people looking at this module will find it helpful to work through all the sections in order, but if you're looking for help with a specific issue at the beginning of the consultation, you can start from there. There are skills which help the consultation to start well before you even start talking with the patient. These skills happen even before the patient enters the room. And two of the chapters examine the skills you need to help you to be ready and even help you to be less tired at the end of the day. The first of these chapters is called, Is Your Preparation Helping to Positively Maximise Performance? And the other chapter is enticingly called, How Can You Go Home with Energy to Spare? The very first moments of the consultation are crucial for starting things off well, and that is also true of what you say next. So you might like to have a look at these chapters for some more ideas. First of all, the chapter called Why is Rapport Like Money? examines the skills you need to form a really good rapport with every patient you see. And the chapter, which is called What Do You Say After You Say Hello? explores different approaches to the very first few moments of the consultation and looks at what makes for a most effective start. Having a structured approach to the beginning of the consultation will really help things to run much more smoothly later on. And there are chapters which cover evidence-based approaches to agreeing the agenda with the patient. The first one of these is called, How is a consultation like a business meeting? And the second chapter is called, Can you learn to love a patient who brings a list? I think many people will recognise the need for skills that deal with those issues. Each chapter has a general introduction, which is available in written and podcast form. For some chapters, there are also podcasts where educators and trainees discuss the skills and how to learn them. Each chapter has written detailed suggestions for educators and learners about how to teach and learn the particular skills covered in the chapter. There are also some references if you want to delve further and there are practical resources to help you learn. For example, scenarios for practice, checklists to assist feedback for skills, some ideas about things to practice on. We hope you'll enjoy using these resources and that each chapter will contribute something different to your learning about the beginning of the consultation. This podcast is part of the module called TALC, Skills for Beginning Consultations Effectively. The chapter I'm going to talk about now is the one which concerns the preparation. And it's called, Is Your Preparation Positively Promoting Good Performance? Now, there's an old adage which is apparently misattributed to Benjamin Franklin, which says, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. But I think the British Army adage has it something like, Proper preparation and planning prevents poor performance. We often don't think about preparing for consultations as an important skill, and yet there are things that we can do before the patient even comes into the room which will help us to prepare and be ready for the consultation. There are two aspects of preparing for a consultation, each requiring slightly different skills. Firstly, the clinician needs to be orientated to the specific situation of the patient they're about to see. But they also need to be ready to whatever comes up because we don't really know what each patient is going to talk to us about. And the chapter I'm talking about today addresses how to be ready for the specific patient who's coming next. But the clinician also needs to be personally prepared, psychologically speaking, for the consultation to come. And the skills you need to do that are covered in the chapter called How Can You Go Home With Energy To Spare? 
Both of these skills need to be learned early in medical training. And indeed, such skills are useful to any clinician working with patients. In hospital consultations or A&E settings, there may be relatively little information available about the patient as a whole, and clinicians might be quite used to simply plunging into the conversation or picking up from a quick verbal handover. However, in a primary care setting, it's unusual to have no information about a patient available before the consultation. Even a patient who is brand new to the practice will have interpretable demographic information and may well have some previous notes, some prescriptions lists or summaries from a previous practice. Having a systematic approach to reviewing the information available in the medical record will enable the clinician to orientate themselves to the patient and avoid some very obvious traps. For example, if you're not aware of a major health condition or relevant drug information or a social issue, you can get into some very awkward situations in the consultation. Quite a lot of people will have had a situation where they've said something like, so what will you tell your wife when you get home? Only to hear the patient say, she died last week. I saw the other doctor about that. This is embarrassing and also unnecessary. The skill of preparing for the consultation is a specific example of an important skill set called situational awareness. This means being conscious of what's happening around you, continuously checking your own perceptions against reality and against incoming information. So having situational awareness helps to predict the immediate and future impact of your own or the team's actions, including anticipating complications. These skills include things like monitoring the baseline. Now this means asking yourself, is there anything odd or unusual here? Is there a noise from something happening in the waiting room? Is there something unusual about the way this patient is consulting right now? For example, is this someone who hardly ever comes to a consultation? Is this somebody who is insisting they need a home visit when they usually consult by telephone? All these things are looking out for variations from the baseline and give useful information. The next thing to be aware of is our bias towards normality. This refers to our tendency to convince ourselves that things are fine, rather than noticing subtle signs of something we need to attend to. For example, is this person consulting for the second or third time about an apparently uncomplicated water infection? Why is this elderly patient calling and saying it's just a bit of backache? Is that okay? Is that normal? The next thing we need to do at the beginning is to avoid excessive focus lock. Now, this describes the way that we can concentrate on some aspects of the situation while ignoring others. For example, we might concentrate on a history of low mood, tiredness, poor sleep and a history of depression, not pay much attention to chronic loose stools. This might mean that we miss the fact that in this particular patient at this particular time, the diarrhoea is a sign of inflammatory bowel disease and their tiredness and poor sleep might be connected with that. Being prepared improves the consultation and has important benefits for the clinician themselves. Being prepared increases your confidence, it means errors are less likely and it certainly impresses patients. The result is less stress for the clinician and increased satisfaction for both parties. Now, one thing to do is to have a look at the notes carefully and see what the electronic record is telling you. First of all, is this an acute visit or part of a follow-up? Does the appointment screen have any notes? For example, also wants prescription for her mother. What are the basic demographic details, name, age, gender, address, and what can be gleaned for this? For example, an address might give a highly relevant clue about the kind of place a person lives or who else they live with. Have a look and see if there are any key alerts. This might be something about the treatment they're on, something they're allergic to, or some aspect of their care which everybody seems to remember. What are the key existing problems? It's important to know about this. It's no good saying to a patient, I think you might have diabetes, if they then say to you, yes, I know about that. I've had it for 20 years. Go on to have a look at what they've recently consulted about. This will give you some context about their recent health, as will checking what drugs they're on. Are they actually collecting their prescriptions? Can you infer an illness that they might be having just from looking at the drugs they're on? Looking at the drug list carefully, are there any likely interactions that might play a part in their health? 
Finally, have a look and see if they've had any tests or investigations or recent hospital letters. This again will give you some context. Now, initially, this might seem a lot to do and practice by doing it slowly and carefully. As you get used to scanning around the notes, you'll get quicker and you'll be able to do it more quickly and under time pressure. So this is an introduction to what you need to do to positively promote good performance before the patient even enters the room. Have a look at the written resources for further ideas about learning this and further references as to what can help you understand this process more clearly. This podcast is part of a series on the module TALC, Beginning Consultations Effectively. And today we're going to talk about the chapter which is called Can You Go Home With Energy To Spare? This chapter really concerns ways in which we can prepare ourselves for consulting. And the question, can we go home with energy to spare, is an important one because a lot of people naturally find working in consultations all day long quite tiring. I'm going to begin by a quotation by a psychotherapist called Wilfred Bion, who said, The purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire. And in this discussion, I'm going to explore a little bit about what he means by that and about how that insight can help us go home with energy to spare. In a primary care setting, or perhaps in A&E, a wide range of unpredictable problems can be encountered during the course of a single day. You can't say to yourself, today I'm going to do cardiology, or today I'll just stick to easier problems. When a clinician is unfamiliar with assessing situations in primary care, the range of expertise required, together with the cognitive strain of learning new ways to consult, can be very tiring. Paradoxically, highly skilled consulting is less tiring, and those who are new to primary care, observing their seniors, often say things like, gosh, it looks easy, or that doctor seems so relaxed. How can clinicians learn to be effective while also being more relaxed, less drained, and perhaps less exhausted at the end of the day. From an educator's point of view, there are general methods for teaching approaches to maintaining energy and resilience, which I've covered in a companion work called Engage, Energise, Enrich and Evaluate, a textbook of educational methods. But in the specific context of the consultation, resilience arises when attention is paid to housekeeping skills. These are learnable skills that clinicians use to maintain their composure and resilience. And this term was invented by Roger Neighbour, who said that in between consultations, every clinician needs to do some personal, in quotes, housekeeping, close quotes, to get them ready for the next consultation. This is because worry and stress can carry over from one consultation to the next. Sometimes this means by the end of a session, clinicians feel quite wrung out and drained. This chapter is going to examine some methods to help clinicians manage this kind of problem. When Bion, who was a psychotherapist, talked about the idea that we need to listen without memory or desire, this might seem a little puzzling. Surely we need to remember our patients, encourage continuity and build our relationships over time. And certainly that is one very important component of our work. However, in the context of the consultation, this is also about leaving one consultation behind us completely so as to be ready for the next encounter with the patient, as Beyond says, without memory or desire. In other words, we need to prevent any hangover of emotions or thoughts processes from one consultation blending over into the next one. That means being without memory. This is so that we can be open to truly listen to what the next person wants to talk about. Clinicians must be ready for attentive listening without presuppositions about what we're to hear next. In other words, that's what Beyond talks about when he says being without desire. This is so that the next patient will be fully heard by us. Stress can carry over between patients for a variety of reasons. If there's been some clinical uncertainty, the clinician may spend too much time thinking sort of what if questions. Clinicians may have second thoughts or concerns about a consultation, or maybe the patient has been expressing strong emotions. Distressed or angry patients can leave a large sort of hangover, and simply being aware of others' suffering can be stressful in itself. 
These discussions will be discussed in more detail in the module called Making Consulting More Sustainable Over Time. But in this chapter, there are simply some suggestions that we can develop for developing a housekeeping pause between consultations. This is so that we can get ready for the next consultation. Taking care of yourself as a clinician needs both long and short-term approaches. Long-term approaches are things that ensure that good levels of energy and good mental health are maintained over time. This could include positive use of leisure time, getting enough sleep, connecting with others and loved ones, caring for your physical health and accessing positive emotions such as gratitude. In this chapter, we're talking about more immediate and short-term actions that can help within the working day. This might include pausing for drinks or food, creating moments of relaxation and connecting with others in the workplace in positive ways. Pacing and varying your tasks can help as well. So I'm going to focus in particular about ways to unwind and relax in between patients. Now, this might seem quite difficult when there's always a lot of pressure on us to see patients quickly and get on with the next. But taking as little as a few seconds, maybe 15 seconds between patients can have huge effects. So I'm going to talk about three approaches that can be helpful. These are called immediate calming methods, distraction methods and regenerative methods. So let's think about immediate methods first. Now, this is when you want to unwind between patients before you see the next one. And I'm taking, this is read that you've finished the notes and you're ready to look at the next patient's notes. But before you do that, pay attention to your breathing. Look out of the window or look at something personally meaningful or something beautiful. A very quick breathing exercise that can help between patients is called four square breathing. And then this, you breathe in for a count of four, hold your breath for a count of four, Breathe out for a count of four and hold your breath for a count of four. Try it now. Breathe in. One, two, three, four. Hold your breath. Two, three, four. Breathe out. Two, three, four. Hold your breath again. Two, three, four. That little pause probably takes less than 15 seconds. But it activates your parasympathetic nervous system and that can make you feel calmer and happier. Having something beautiful on the wall or something personally meaningful to you on your desk while you do that exercise will make it even better. There are more suggestions for immediate methods to unwind between patients in the written resources that go with this chapter. Distraction methods are also very important. These include simple things like having a cup of coffee, maybe checking your phone for a personal message, reading a short poem or taking a walk, perhaps to go and get something for a reception or go to the loo or just to step outside for a moment. Reading a short poem might seem a very strange thing to do between consultations, but if you have a book of such poetry handy and have a quick look at it, it can really help to unwind your mind by distracting you for a few moments after a stressful consultation. There are other suggestions for distraction methods in the written materials that go with this chapter. Finally, regenerative methods are things which really build up your energy. This is not just compensating for the energy that you've used, but get you to a better place. Now, these kind of methods include reflection on the meaning and importance of the work we're doing, noting things that we can be grateful for or remembering things that have gone well. A writer called Ronald Epstein considers that every day we should look for a, a moment of exquisite beauty to nourish us. This could be a lovely cloud glimpsed through a window, a child's smile, maybe a lovely earring that somebody's wearing. And his book, Attending, has got a lot of reflections about how to achieve mastery in both consulting and in self-awareness. There are more suggestions for regenerative methods in the written resources that go with this chapter. And there's also a podcast where I discuss these issues in more detail with Dr. Rebecca Barron, who is a resilience expert. The written resources also include powerful methods to include our attention and closer listening. And these pure listening skills are described in much more detail in the module called Skills for Effective Information Gathering. 
I hope you'll find some of these suggestions helpful. And as we build up our energy through the day, replacing the energy that we're using up, perhaps we really can go home with some energy to spare for our gardens, our families, for relaxation, for sport, for anything that brings us joy. So today's podcast is part of the module on beginning consultations effectively. It particularly supports the chapter which is concerned with how we prepare ourselves to consult. And the chapter asks the question, how can you go home with energy to spare? Today, I'm joined by Rebecca Barron, who has a particular interest in resilience and sustainability in our medical work. So Rebecca, can you start by telling me a little bit about your educational roles and your experiences as a GP? Uh, yeah, thanks, Avril. I um, qualified as a GP in 1988 and um, worked in clinical practice until four years ago um, and loved it. Um, I've been involved in GP training from very soon after going into practice and um, work in areas of clinical governance and quality, um, but I particularly enjoyed educational work. I'm an associate dean um, and my um, areas of particular interest are around leadership and resilience and really just about how to get the best, how to in- how to get the best out of what we do, how to be the best, and how to enjoy it. Thank you very much. Now, the chapter we're talking about today um, is thinking about how we maintain our energy while we're consulting through the day. There's so much to do in general practice in particular, and clinical work is very complicated these days. Do you think it's really possible to reach the end of the day and still feel energised by the experience? (laughs) I mean, I think it's certainly a hard job. I wouldn't underestimate the challenge of the job and the difficult job. I think there are ways of managing it that can make it feel better. Um, and I think I think one of the key things is about realizing the complexity of what we do. We've got to be really clever to do what we do. Um, there's a lot of skill goes into it. And it's not about being perfect or knowing the answer. So I think that that kind of recognition, um, I'm not saying you're not tired after a day, but I think there's a difference between good tiredness and a kind of frustration and exhaustion. Right. Well, well, that gives us a, a challenge for thinking about how to achieve that during the day. Um, the chapter in, in the module talks about different ways to maintain energy and focus in the day. Uh, there are sort of immediate calming down methods, distraction methods, um, and what we're calling rebuilding or regenerative methods. I'd like to talk about immediate calming methods first. So, for example, in between consultations, uh, we might do a breathing exercise or a relaxation exercise or something like that. Could, could you comment on, on why that might work or my, why doing a breathing exercise would be a good thing to do? Yeah, I mean, it's really um, uh, helpful, I found, to understand what it is about those things that helps. I've um, been particularly influenced by some work by Stephen Porges on the polyvagal theory, which is about how our autonomic nervous system works and how the parasympathetic nervous system calms us. So looking at techniques that activate the parasympathetic nervous system and switch off that kind of stress, cortisol, fright, flight response, which actually gives us that kind of unpleasant exhaustion is, is, is really helpful. And there's lots of things, and that's why breathing, exhalation, we know it slows your heart rate, it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, that's why those things help and work. And there's lots of other things that can also um, help stimulate that and, and give us that opportunity. Um, so I could talk a bit about those. Well, I think it's really interesting to think that there's a kind of firm physiological and evidence base for, um, for example, uh, doing four square breathing or, or washing your hands and breathing and being very mindful of what you're doing uh, in just those few moments. Um, and I know we're going to talk at more length about some of these things in a, a resilience podcast later on. I'd like to just talk a little bit about distraction methods, which are probably the easiest way to prepare yourself for the next consultation. And that's things like, you know, standing up and walking around, maybe going somewhere, getting something from reception, having a coffee, uh, reading a poem or something like that, that you, you can have in your desk. Those are all straightforward distractions. But, but I'd like to ask you, Rebecca, about some more perhaps complex 
ways of preparing ourselves for the next consultation. In the chapter, I've called these regenerative methods. They're things which actually boost our energy, uh, not just relaxation, but actually, as it were, make us have a, an extra bit of energy. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about some of these kind of things that, that, that help us to get a boost during the day. Yeah, and I think, I think even the simple things, understanding why they happen. I mean, you mentioned about um, you know, having something that you look at. I mean, the idea of having an icon in your surgery, and I had always, when I was working, um, a photograph of um, a particular mountain, but which I loved and was really beneficial for me to look at. And whilst we think that's simple, it actually has, looking at that, takes me to that place, causes a chemical release that makes me feel better. It's gonna up my serotonin, up my dopamine. We know that happens. So things like that are really important, even though this seems simple. And like you were saying about washing your hands, I mean, actually walking across the room and washing your hands, movement and exercise is really good for the brain. Again, that really helps. But there are some specific techniques that you can do. Um, there's one um, which I found really helpful and which um, is um, the evidence is very strong around um, um, from the work that Martin Seligman does is around something called three good things, which is thinking at the end of each day, what good things have happened and three good things that have happened and why those things have happened. And sometimes I think within general practice or within any busy um, role, particularly clinical role, things aren't necessarily good um, because challenging things, difficult things happen to us. But actually there can be things that you are pleased about or thankful for or happy that have happened. Um, and I often use the acronym parathyroid hormone, please, thankful, happy. And think about something, you know, and you can think about it with an individual consultation. You may see somebody really challenging, but you can be pleased that you've maintained rapport through that consultation um, and thankful that it's gone as well as it could have done. Um, um, so actually really focusing on that, because we sometimes think, you know, when you do general practice a lot, you can start to think, you know, oh, anybody could do this. Anybody could come off the street and do this. But that's not the case. There's massive skills underlying your consultation skills and your ability to develop rapport with a patient. And having rapport um, and getting really good rapport with a patient is based on a set of skills and it's good for their brain and it's good for our brain as well. That's really helpful. I, I really like the idea of PTH. We, we all like um, three-letter acronyms, don't we? And, and have, thinking throughout the day about things that you're pleased about or thankful for or that you're happy about at work, uh, I think are, are really useful things. And I think, uh, for example, you can be happy that somebody's helped you at work. Maybe a team member has done something for you or helped you out of a difficulty or even brought you a cup of coffee. And being able to say thank you to people and express gratitude is nice for other people, but actually expressing gratitude does those same chemical releases that you were talking about for ourselves, doesn't it? So some of these very simple, quick things actually boost our energy without us having to spend a lot of time or go and lie down in a darkened room for hours. You know, they're just ways of giving ourselves a little fillip as we go along. You mentioned, and I think you you hinted there about how having rapport and working with other people um, is a very important skill. And I'd like to pick up and ask you to talk about whether you think we actually can get energy from our relationships with our colleagues and patients, because we often think of our relationships at work being a drain on our energies. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could say something about working with other people as giving a boost to our energy. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's different aspects, different people we work with, patients, colleagues, um, different groups of people. And um, we know, um, just going back to the empathy, that developing empathy with people and getting to a level of empathy where we want to help people um, and have that ability is a skill that as doctors we develop. And you probably recognise um, that that changes as you work as a doctor, because you, you have to be able to demonstrate and get involved in empathy without it completely flooring you without you we if we feel empathic often maybe to somebody close to us through mirror neurons we start to feel those feelings and we can't allow um, I mean that could be overwhelming as a doctor um, so it's kind of we um, adapt our brains a little bit um, to be able to cope with that but yet still care um, but what we know and what the evidence shows is that when you go into a deep level of empathy with a patient, um, it's actually 
very uplifting. It's part of what gives us that buzz. It's why many of us wanted to be doctors. And actually understanding and learning how to manage that is really helpful. So I think that that's um, kind of a, a, a crucial um, aspect of, of, of how we work together. Um, I mean, there's other, other parts of, of, of that um, sort of working with people. Um, we know that, um, I mean, if you look at the work of uh, Daniel Goldman around how we work with each other, working with people who are positive is really uplifting. Positive emotions are really infectious. And it's one of the reasons why we do really well as GPs. And that if you smile and you respond to a patient, often you might be the only person that's done that that day, but it's a very mutual beneficial thing. And people want to be around positive people. So creating an atmosphere at work and an environment where people look after each other is kind of self-perpetuating and self-fulfilling. And the difference between an environment where that happens and one where it doesn't is enormous. Basically people want to work in positive environments. Um, and often people love working in GP surgeries because as GPs, we know how to do that. We know how to get the best out of people, but recognizing how important that is um, um, and, and making environments where it happens. So it's about, you know, people making cups of coffee for each other, bringing in a cake, all those kind of things, as well as just that kind of welcoming smile that you give to a patient. I think it's really interesting that you're talking about very concrete actions there. This is not airy-fairy, it's quite specific things, isn't it? Being able to work with other people, smile at other people, show gratitude, share food or, or whatever. And I think in a, in a way, however difficult our work is, we can choose to be cheerful. Uh, the Stoics say, you know, you, you can't influence the world, but you can influence the way you respond to it. So you can say, wow, it's a really busy day today. Thank goodness I'm here with my nice team. I mean, you can choose to be cheerful. You don't have to be doomy about it. And that cheerfulness, as you say, will improve your own mood, but also that of other people as well. And that's quite a, a positive feedback loop in a way, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm going to come back to preparing for consultations again, because that this is what this particular chapter is focusing on. And, and quite often we can feel a bit demoralised when we get the unexpected consultation or something that's going to be difficult. You know, like when somebody says, oh, there's somebody having an epileptic fit in the bathroom or, um, you know, there's a, a, an urgent phone call that's come up that you weren't expecting or somebody coming in and you know that their problem is something you feel a bit challenged by. Now, ideally, we want to be able to manage those kind of things and prepare ourselves for that as well and get into that nice state of flow and empathy that you were talking about before. So can you say a bit more about that and how we might help ourselves to prepare for those situations? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, coming from several different directions, I mean, how we organise ourselves and how you organise your day is really important. Um, and I mean, this talking about is not, you know, there is there's the evidence behind it. And one piece of evidence I found really helpful is from Daniel Kahneman in his work, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he talks about different sort of thinking, type one thinking, easy stuff, just happens automatically. It might happen if, I don't know, somebody comes in with an ear infection, you probably don't have to think too much about that. But type two thinking, that complex, difficult thinking, those difficult consultations, you're thinking, oh my God, I don't know what, well, I don't know what to do um, in, in that situation, is type two thinking. And it involves a different bit of the brain and it's really quite tiring to do. And different people have different amounts of stamina to be able to continually type to think. And for a lot of us as GPs, that's what we're doing a lot of the time. And it's actually one of the really exciting things about the job because it makes it interesting. But your brain needs more food when you're doing that. It, needs, it uses more sugar. Your brain uses a lot of your energy requirements. And you probably find if you if you're on call or you've got difficult results or a difficult patient, you sort of there might be an urge to go and have a piece of chocolate or a biscuit or you need some food. And that's actually because your brain's telling you that's what you need. So that actually making certain that you are, I know it sounds really basic, but the, the evidence for it is really powerful. You will make better decisions if your blood sugar isn't falling. Um, and I mean, in, in the way we worked in my surgery, I really struggled with doing a morning surgery and then going and doing visits. So actually we had a system where the visits were done earlier by one person and then we did a surgery later so think about those sorts of things think about when you need to eat I mean it's not and you know it's different things for different people so I think that's one of the really important elements and I think the other element is thinking about what is it that um, actually enables us to cope with this stuff and Martin Seligman um, um, talks a lot about this in how different people um, sustain their resilience and what he says is it's different for different people and you know we were talking before about smiling and being positive 
actually that's partly genetic. Some people find it easier than others, but other things are equally important. And thinking about how we um, engage with people and that depth of engagement, which we were talking about in terms of empathy, that is something that can give you a lot of um, energy and actually recognize that that's important. The relationship aspects we were talking about working within a team um, is crucial. I think the other aspect to think about is meaning. Um, meaning is something that really um, can help sustain us. And what could be more meaningful than the work that we do really as doctors and particularly as GPs? And we sometimes forget how much meaning our consultation has on how a patient copes with an illness. And I know that from my own personal experience. So it's, it's really not forgetting those items um, that can help give you that um, energy to carry on. Mm. So it's interesting sort of preparing for perhaps the unexpected can we need to run the full gamut from making sure that we time when we have our snacks at work so that we're ready for the on-call session or whatever through to remembering those deeper things about the meaning and purpose of what we're doing and the fact that we've committed ourselves to working in this clinical environment and that we're developing the skills that enable us to work there and to work with other people. So being prepared for a consultation could take a few moments, but it's also a kind of lifetime's work as well, in a way, isn't it? As we link ourselves to these bigger issues about the purpose and meaning of what we're doing, recognizing our achievements, being grateful for what's happening and being grateful for the things that we're pleased about, thankful about, happy about for the people we're working with. So preparing for consultations is quite a complex business and it can happen in a few moments and it can happen over time. If you want to learn more about this aspect of consulting, read the chapter called, How Can You Go Home With Energy To Spare? And there's a lot of suggestions and evidence in there about how we can do this kind of thing more effectively for ourselves and our patients. Rebecca, I'd like to say thank you very much for all your insights. It's really helpful. Thank you. And I uh, hope we'll be able to talk to you again on another occasion. Thank you very much. This podcast is concerned with the TALC module called TALC, Skills for Beginning Consultations Effectively. And the chapter I'm going to talk about now is called Why is Rapport Like Money? Now, Ian Forster famously said, only connect. He thought everything in life followed from that. And a, a writer called Laborde said, rapport is like money. It increases in importance when you do not have it. And when you do have it, a lot of opportunities appear. So let's have a think about how to develop rapport effectively in consultations. We often take a good rapport for granted. And yet when it's not there in the consultation, we'll soon find out how difficult it is to make any effective progress. Rapport has been defined as a close and harmonious relationship in which the people or groups concerned are in sync with each other understand each other's feelings or ideas and communicate smoothly. Communicating smoothly is the kind of thing we're all aiming for, isn't it? Other definitions emphasise something slightly more instrumental, considering that rapport means increasing your influence. So rapport is the ability to relate to others in a way that creates a level of trust and understanding. It's important to build rapport with your client or colleague as it gets their unconscious mind to accept and begin to process your suggestions. They are made to feel comfortable and relaxed, open to suggestions. Both of these elements can be important in consultations because we want to communicate smoothly, but we also want people to feel comfortable and relaxed. When we have a good rapport, we feel connected and the interaction is smoother and more satisfying. And this is just as true at the supermarket checkout as it is in the consultation. Rapport has two phases. First of all, initiating rapport, and then afterwards, maintaining and deepening rapport. In the TALC module, Skills for Building Effective Relationships, there's another chapter called, Can We All Get on the Same Page? How to Deepen Rapport. But today, I'm going to mainly talk about initiating rapport, which is a very easily learnable skill. If you do certain behaviours, rapport improves like magic. So we initiate rapport in consultations by these things. We make eye contact. We smile with a full face, including the eyes. 
and then we project a silent message a silent message of warmth and goodwill to the other person. This is explained in full detail in a book from a North West England GP called David McConnell. This approach creates a very good start to the consultation and begins the process of beginning to build a clinician-patient relationship. And if you don't have that going, none of the other tasks of the consultation will be effectively completed. Gathering information, explaining and planning care, even finishing the consultation effectively and on time, all build very much on having a good rapport with the patient. Sometimes building rapport can be complicated. If the patient is already upset, for example, or if they've been kept waiting and they're cross about that. Clinicians might work through this by following up their initial rapport building, smiling, making eye contact and sending a silent message of goodwill by saying afterwards, thank you for waiting. I apologise that I'm running late. Or maybe, thank you for waiting. I know it can be difficult. I'm sorry that my feverish patients run over time. Some clinicians would even go further and say, I'm sorry for keeping you waiting. We are here together now and you have my full attention. That's a good way to establish rapport and get the patient on your side. There are other skills which you might need to think about with the angry patient and there's chapters on this in the TALC Skills for Building Effective Relationships module. Thinking about how to learn this skill is straightforward in a way. Having described it, you might have a go, but just reading about something or hearing it described is not the same as actually practicing it. I sometimes suggest that educators, or maybe you could do this with a peer, practice different ways to approach a person entering the room. So send somebody outside and then sit down with your back to the door. When they knock and come in, try some different approaches to how you greet them. For example, you could start with your back to the door, looking at the television screen or the computer screen, wave vaguely at a chair and say, oh, do sit down. You could do something different. You could look up briefly and say, hello, I'm just finishing on the computer. You could next time look up briefly and say, oh, you're here for a chat, aren't you? And then go back to the screen. Then you could look up and make eye contact, keep a straight face and say, oh, it's you again. Finally, you could make eye contact, give a warm smile, project a silent message of warmth and goodwill and ask the patient to sit down. Ask your partner to tell you what all these different approaches feel like for them and then link that explicitly to how patients might feel on entering a room. You can change roles and, and try being the person coming in and receiving all those different approaches. You'll soon, soon learn what it's like to have a good rapport and to feel how nice it is if somebody looks at you, smiles and sends a silent message of goodwill. I suggest practicing this in as many situations as you can. It's quite quick to do and quite fun. Practice it with colleagues as well as patients or practice it at home. What's the effect of reading the name on a checkout person's badge in the supermarket, making eye contact, smiling, sending them a silent message of goodwill and saying, hello, Margaret, or whatever their name is. Just see how many times you can practice rapport building in this way and feel the effects that it has. It tends to make people respond very positively to you and it makes you feel better yourself when you send a message of goodwill to somebody, which is strange, but true. Doing this will make you feel better about yourself, make you feel better about the consultation and probably help you to conserve energy through the day. Look out for the next chapter in this series, which is going to be about what do you say after you say hello. In this podcast, we're going to be considering one of the chapters from the module called Talc Skills for Beginning Consultations Effectively. And the chapter today is called What Do You Say After You Say Hello? Now, this is a famous phrase that was originally coined by Eric Byrne, author of a book called Games People Play. And he was very interested in how people started off their conversations with each other. Now, in a consultation, after greeting the patient and establishing a basic rapport, 
And if you want to know how to do that better, see the chapter called Why is Rapport Like Money? But after that, the clinician usually opens the conversation by asking the patient a question to establish what the consultation is going to be about. In many videos and observed consultations live, the clinician says something like, how can I help you today? This phrase is so widely used, it's almost become invisible and it's almost not noticed by clinicians. In fact, it contains and expresses a number of assumptions about the clinician's expectations of the consultation. Firstly, it implies that the patient is seeking help and by implication, they need help and which further implies that they are somehow a slightly lesser party to the consultation. Furthermore, the clinician asks how they can help, implying that their job is to help and that the responsibility for doing so is theirs. This might seem a little over-analytical, but let's consider an alternative approach when the clinician perhaps smiles and says, over to you, perhaps with an appropriate hand gesture. In this case, there's no expectation about what the consultation is for, nor who is the needy party, nor about whether anyone there is needing help or providing help. The opening is left, well, open. The clinician must remain attentive and alert and makes no presuppositions. This open approach in itself will help to build a respectful relationship and also reminds the clinician to give attention to the patient's initial statement. The patient has probably been rehearsing that statement in their heads in the waiting room before they come in, so it's always essential to listen carefully to what the patient says at the beginning. There are actually a number of options and choices for the what do you say after you say hello part of the consultation. The opening could be a statement of some kind, it could be an open question, or it could be what's called an open directed question. There is no single universally correct choice. The clinician must always be aware of the opening they're choosing and make sure it's suitable and not just a form of words that they've learnt by rote. So let's analyse some of these approaches in a bit more detail. A statement indicates that the floor is really open to the patient to speak and a statement could be something like over to you or please start or I'm listening or I'm all ears. Often patients who are very keen to tell you their opening statement will just plunge straight in after that and sometimes people start talking even as they're taking their coat off. So you only need to make a gesture to support something like over to you. An open question on the other hand is a question but does leave things totally open. What would you like to talk about today is a good example of this. On balance, that is probably the single best way to make the consultation proceed after you've said hello, because it leaves things completely open. It may be that the patient wants to talk about themselves. It may be that they want to talk about somebody else. It may be that they want to talk about a problem. They may have just come to say thank you because things went well. The third approach is to use what's called an open directed question. This is a question that cannot be answered by a single word, but it also directs attention to a specific area or issue. So how can I help you today? Or what can I do for you today? There's nothing particularly wrong with those questions, but as I said before, they do imply a certain relationship between the doctor or the clinician and the patient. And it may be better to leave things more open at this early stage. Generally speaking, questions beginning with how and what are much more easily answered than why questions, which can be a bit ambiguous and for some people even a bit threatening. So if you use the question, why have you come today? This could mean, why have you come today? Or, what is the problem you've come about? Or, why did you make the appointment? And that might be, because my husband nagged me. Or even, why did you come today? Because it's my day off work. It's intrinsically an ambiguous question. Try experimenting with different openings and reflecting on the effects of different kinds of approach. And this can help you to make this part of the consultation less stereotyped and more flexible to individuals. Makes it more interesting too. Remember that many patients will be using the waiting room time to rehearse exactly how they want to start the conversation. So it may not be necessary to do anything much more than establish a good rapport using the skills in the chapter why is rapport like money? One special circumstance to consider in this phase of the consultation is when the patient may be unfamiliar with the customs of the consultation. 
This could be because they're from another country or a different culture. Perhaps they don't speak English fluently or if they're very young and inexperienced in consulting on their own. In these circumstances, it's worth spending a little time establishing a relationship with the patient with some easy to answer questions, for example, about where they've come from, their name, perhaps which school they go to, or other straightforward questions, followed by an explanation of how the clinician plans to structure the consultation. So something like, I'd like to ask you what you'd like to talk to me about today, then I might need to examine you before we discuss our plans for the next steps. If there are unanticipated language issues, this can also be the opportunity to consider whether an interpreter is needed and how that might be achieved. In every situation, it is essential to allow the patient to speak uninterrupted until they complete their opening description of what they want to talk about. Attentive listening at this point pays huge dividends later on and does not lengthen the consultation. There's quite a lot of evidence about this and the references, if you want to delve further, are summarised in the written materials in this module. Thinking about how to teach and learn this approach means really using some time to delve into these approaches. Think about as many different ways of opening the consultation as you possibly can, whether that's statements or questions or just open directed questions. Try and brainstorm as many as you possibly can. And then analyse the benefits and risks of different kinds of approach. Remember that there's often an assumption that follow-up consultations or planned reviews for chronic disease might start differently, such as we're here today to review your asthma. Follow-up conversations may begin with questions like, how are you today? How have things been going? Have you been getting on? How have you been since we last met? How have things been going with your treatment or your new pills or since your referral? This sounds like an obvious way to proceed, but it is rash to make the assumption that the clinician knows in advance what the consultation is going to be about. The patient may have a more pressing or new issue to discuss. Keeping things open, what would you like to talk about today, and then adding in the clinician's agenda later on, is usually the most effective way to keep on track and avoid later rising issues, even in follow-up consultations. It's worth practising some different approaches to consultations in real life. Practice a variance of, of keeping silent or saying something like go on or, or some other statement. Practice using a very open question like what would you like to talk about today? And after the consultation, reflect on how it feels and what happened. If you're watching a video of yourself consulting with your trainer, Think about the opening statement and try and demonstrate some other methods in future videos and see what happens. Make sure to read up about this. There's a lot of information in the consultation skills textbooks and in the literature about this matter. Remember that there's a bit more to starting the consultation than just asking the patient what they'd like to talk about. And those issues are covered in a lot more detail in the next chapter, which is called how is a consultation like a business meeting? This podcast concerns the module which is called TALC Skills for Beginning Consultations Effectively and is about the chapter called How is a consultation like a business meeting? When clinicians think they've finished their consultation only to hear the patient say by the way there are a couple of other things I still need to talk to you about it can feel that the consultation has been derailed in some way. It's kind of difficult sometimes to have the stamina and interest to start again with new problems. Consultations that end like this are often longer and more difficult to close. Paradoxically, if more time is spent at the start checking and negotiating the agenda for the consultation, then overall consultations are not necessarily longer and they certainly proceed in a more structured and orderly fashion. This is actually less stressful and less tiring for clinicians, and it's definitely more satisfying for the patient. Malcolm Thomas has run successful consultation skills courses for many years, considers that the consultation is really a special form of a business meeting. He says that a successful meeting is more likely if these factors are in place. A clear agenda, efficient chairing, good time management, clarity about what all parties are looking for. Sounds like common sense, doesn't it? At Kaiser Permanente, a very large and successful healthcare organisation in the USA, 
Consultation skills training is undertaken by all clinicians because it reduces litigation, improves patient satisfaction and also improves markers of long-term care like HbA1c. Kaiser Permanente emphasise something called investing in the beginning of the consultation as a crucial part of effective consulting. And if investing in the beginning starts with the sections on why is rapport like money and what do you say after you say hello. But the next skill is how to negotiate a mutually acceptable agenda for the consultation. This involves allowing the patient to speak uninterrupted until they've completed their opening statement. It is often quoted that clinicians interrupt very early in consultations, sometimes as early as 12 seconds. Those figures mainly come from America. In fact, an audit of British GPs showed that with training, they did not interrupt their patients. Moreover, when you don't interrupt patients, it does not mean they talk for ages. Very few talk for longer than 16 to 90 seconds and many for less time than that. Getting this right at the start does not lengthen consultations overall, and that has been repeatedly confirmed by research. Expressing concern and empathy in a short statement early on is also associated with shorter consultations. Before gathering information about the issues that the patient initially raises in their opening statement, it is important, however, to screen for other issues by asking a question like, is there anything else you were planning to talk to me about today? The crucial word here is planning. If the patient is planning to talk to you about something, they will talk about that, even if it happens very late in the consultation with a hand on the doorknob and them saying something like, by the way, it's far better to know what you're dealing with in advance. Finally, remember that the clinician may need to add some issues of their own. I'd like to check your blood pressure today or I'd like to check your medications, or you're overdue for your chronic medication review. Before moving on to information gathering, the clinician should signal the end of the agenda setting part of the consultation by summarising and checking the plan for dealing with the items. This could include an agreement to focus on the most important issues, perhaps deferring others, or more helpfully, the clinician can agree to make a start on all the issues accepting that not all may be fully resolved. You might want to see the chapter which covers Can you learn to love the patient who brings a list for some more skills here. And the TALC module called Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care includes a chapter called How are effective summarising skills the engine of the consultation? And this will help you towards developing the powerful consultation skill of summarising effectively, which helps to structure things and move things forwards. Thinking a little bit about how to teach and learn this, it's very well worthwhile reflecting about how we feel about the time pressures of consultations and whether we feel that letting the patient talk takes up a lot of time. Have you ever experienced a by-the-way moment yourself or got to the end of a consultation where somebody says, actually, there are a few other things I wanted to mention? How does that feel? It can be quite frustrating, can't it? So this is really the motivation for learning these skills. Research has shown that people have an average of two to four things they need to talk about in most consultations, and it's better to accept this and plan for it. This is more effective and less stressful. If you're less stressed during the day, you tend to have more energy at the end of the clinic. So think about the question of something like the planning question. What else were you planning to talk about today? Use some of the scenarios that are in the written materials that accompany this podcast to practice eliciting that full agenda. Practice negotiating what order you're going to do things in and get some feedback from an educator or a peer about how effectively you're doing this. Educators themselves might like to look at the module TALC Effective Methods for Teaching Consultation Skills, where there's a chapter called Making Skills Rehearsals Effective to help them refine their use of this approach. Remember to look up some of the resources in your textbook or in the literature. These are listed in the written materials that go with this chapter, because there's a lot to learn about this early part of the consultation and understanding the academic background actually will help your skills to develop more quickly. 
look out for the final chapter in this module, which is called Can You Learn to Love a Patient Who Brings a List? This podcast concerns the module Talc Skills for Beginning Consultations Effectively and focuses on the chapter called Can You Learn to Love a Patient Who Brings a List? Now, I was very struck by something I read in a newspaper which said something like this. Receptionists are as scary as hell. Securing an appointment this side of Christmas can be tricky. Then you sit in the waiting room and read a sign that says you should only discuss one thing with the doctor. Now, for some clinicians, a patient with a list inspires irritation or even trepidation because they fear that a list will take up too much time, derail their clinic schedule or reveal problems that are too difficult to solve. The result of such fears may be that clinicians push back, saying they will only deal with one problem or the most important problem. And so what happens to the other issues? They're unlikely to disappear, aren't they? And the patient is left with the difficult task of arranging even more appointments or being left with some issues unattended to. This risks problems becoming more and more acute and problematical later on. Helping clinicians deal with lists begins with exploring and understanding our attitudes towards the consultation. Do we take a patient-centred or a clinician-centred perspective? Who is the consultation really for? Patients view getting an appointment in a very different way to clinicians view it. The quotation that I made at the beginning of this illustrates that. Consulting is a clinician's daily work, but it's a relatively unusual occurrence for most patients. Obtaining an appointment, even a telephone appointment, is seen by patients as becoming increasingly difficult. And so it's perhaps no surprise that patients save up several issues. Furthermore, the idea that a consultation should be about one issue is actually a form of wishful thinking rather than being based on an understanding of what actually happens in routine primary care. Almost all consultations concern more than one issue. In one study, the average number of patients of problems a patient wanted to raise was 2.2, with a range from 1 right through to 16. If patients who had acute problems were excluded, the average number of problems was 3.3. Thus, having more than one problem or concern is actually the norm. Clinicians need to develop the appropriate attitudes and skills to cope with this in a relaxed and skillful way. The other thing to bear in mind is that the first thing the patient mentions may not be the most clinically important matter. Interrupting the patient early on with questions about the first issue tends to make the consultation doctor-centred straight away. And while this might seem efficient, come on, let's get to the point, in practice what happens is that clinicians who try to control the conversation too much early on will find that their patients bring up their main concern much later on in the consultation. Later rising concerns or complaints waste time and are disheartening for everybody. Closed questioning usually reveals less information than attentive listening after an open start. When a patient brings a list, this should be seen as a real opportunity to make the consultation effective. The patient has already helped us along by being prepared in advance and their list can be seen positively as a gift in disguise. It means the patient has already clarified their own agenda. Working collaboratively with their list is much more likely to be efficient and satisfying to both parties. See also the chapter called How is a Consultation Like a Business Meeting? This approach does not necessarily mean that every item on a long list must be dealt with in full as individual items in the current consultation. It is often the case that issues that seem disparate to the patient may be seen as part of a similar problem to the clinician. For example, a patient with reflux symptoms and poor sleep might need attention to their prescriptions of ibuprofen and citalopram. A patient who attends with dry skin, weight gain, wanting something for their constipation and who wants to discuss their disrupting sense of exhaustion may actually be easier to cope with because they might have hypothyroidism than a patient who just comes with a single problem, but that problem turns out to be wanting help with their chronic alcohol abuse. Some problems may only require a few moments anyway, if the patient says, can I get a flu jab while I'm here, for example, while others can be partially dealt with, with a more extensive conversation schedule for later on. 
So, for example, somebody asking for a pill review, it might be resolved in a complicated consultation by saying, well, here is an updated contraception prescription, but let's book a full review with the nurse and a smear for you now so that we can concentrate on today's problem, which is whatever it is. Clinicians should bear in mind that it's not just patients who come with lists. We have lists too, don't we? We look at our alerts or diary entries about long-term conditions. We get reminders about medication reviews or new information to be shared with the patient, such as clinic letters or results. Sometimes pop-up alerts like news scores and so on all do just as much to crowd the agenda. All these need a similar approach. We have to recognise the complex nature of the interaction and plan collaboratively with patients to work out the best way forwards. As one practice manager used to say to me, if it wasn't for the patients, we'd all be out of the job. So we could enjoy helping patients with their complicated problems, which after all are far more interesting than some simple, straightforward matters. When we want to learn to improve our skills in this, it's worth to begin by exploring our own attitudes. Are we really worried that we'll end up with too much to do? Or do we see patients as difficult or demanding? Are we feeling a bit overwhelmed? There are boundaries and limits to a clinician's role, but excluding legitimate health concerns from the conversation without discussion or planning is not an appropriate way to manage the clinician's own anxieties. When somebody comes with a list, it's worth considering how to respond to this. Practice saying thank you for any list the patient presents. Ask the patient if they'll show you their list and look at it carefully. Ask them how they'd like to proceed with the list. Are there some things which are more important than others? Are there some things that you as a clinician could link together? In the written resources that go with this chapter, there are some sample lists to have a practice on. Practice saying, may I see your list, which would be so helpful. And practice saying thank you when a patient has done that. Take the attitude that a list is an interesting learning opportunity rather than a chore. Practice these skills with the next patient who brings a list and discuss what what happens with your peers or with your trainer. Another approach is to use a method called a reverse brainstorm. If you're worried about lists and find them challenging, list all the potential benefits that could follow from a patient bringing a list. For example, we're here to listen to what the patient needs, not what we would prefer. Lists represent preparation. They represent opportunities for collaboration with patients. Seeing the list and discussing it can lead to fruitful negotiations. And always remember that the first thing mentioned might not be the most clinically important. So have a practice. First of all, with the skills in the chapter, how is a consultation like a business meeting? And when you've got your agenda setting skills to a fine art, really tackle the more difficult one of the patient with the list with some confidence that this will bring you into a fruitful and interesting collaboration with the patient. The next module in this series is called TALC Skills for Effective Information Gathering and look out for the podcasts and written materials in that module. The first chapter is called How Can Avoiding Questions Yield More Information? And I hope you'll find it interesting. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.